You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 18th of November 2022 on Monocle 24. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Coming up, nations gather for the annual APEC forum as tensions in the Asia-Pacific region rise. With Sweden changing its constitution and Finland spending millions on a new border fence, we'll get the latest on their NATO applications. There should be no doubt that Sweden will continue to stand firm alongside other like-minded countries in the fight against terrorism. Then, with two major sporting events set to take place in Qatar and the UAE, we'll be looking at sports washing in the Gulf region. They've attracted this attention to themselves, and that attention has gone in places where they didn't want it to go. In that sense, it's a miscalculation which may even prove beneficial from the point of human rights. Plus, the US midterms, the newspapers and the latest TV news. That's all ahead on The Globalist, live from London. First, a look at what else is happening in the news. The Biden administration has determined that Saudi Arabia's Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman should be granted immunity from a lawsuit over the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Chinese leader Xi Jinping has declared that China will consider hosting the third Belt and Road Forum for International Cooperation next year, which would mark the first staging of the event since the start of the pandemic. And a wave of Twitter employees are reportedly quitting the beleaguered social media company after new owner Elon Musk called for staffers to sign up for long hours at high intensity or leave. Stay tuned to Monocle 24 throughout the day for more on those stories. But first, nations are gathering for the annual Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum. Joining me is John Nilsson Wright, an Associate Professor in Japanese Politics at Cambridge University and Korea Foundation Fellow at Chatham House. John, thank you very much for joining us. What's top of the agenda for this meeting? Well, there are a number of issues. Um... One is the question of um, a unified response to, of course, to the war in Ukraine. Um, And secondly, of course, and perhaps most importantly for APEC, as an organisation that is facilitating or designed to facilitate economic uh, cooperation, is the idea of um, a free trade area of the Asia-Pacific, which is something that the APEC negotiators are keen to promote. This, of course, is difficult given the existence of um, countervailing multilateral deals that focus on uh, the region, CPTPP, the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership, and RCEP. And of course, in all of this, um, the Biden administration's attempts to promote its own Indo-Pacific economic framework. So we have a proliferation, if you like, of economic initiatives. Um, and I think the mood in Bangkok, despite the efforts by the by the host country to promote this, is that this is going to be a very difficult sell. And turning to that first issue of Ukraine, why are some APEC nations unwilling to take a stand on this? Um, I think it's partly because it's not central to their own foreign policy priorities. I mean, they recognise that um, the risk of conflict is, is a problem, um, but it's something that 
the political dimensions that are associated with the war in Ukraine is something that APEC countries are, are keen to step back from. And the focus really for them really needs to be on the on the free trade dimension. It doesn't mean that we're not going to see some summit declaration. Um, we've seen, of course, um, in the wake of the meetings, both in Bali and also in Cambodia, a willingness on the part of the international community to, to highlight the importance of um, dampening down the risk of conflict and dealing with the situation in Ukraine. But there are divisions about the best way of doing that uh, and whether the international community should be involved in different ways. Mm. Uh, and turning towards kind of closer cooperation, what are the main roadblocks for these nations? Um, I think, as I mentioned already, the, the existence of rival economic agreements, um, the question of China, the question of how China's role in the region is best to be managed. Um, you know, we've seen during the run up to this meeting, we've had a very important bilateral meeting between the Japanese prime minister and his Chinese counterpart, Xi Jinping, the first time in in three years. Um, efforts, I think, to to both highlight the security risks in the region, um, in the South China Sea, but at the same time, and of course, the question of Taiwan, but also to stress the importance of maintaining uh, economic dialogue and communication. From the Chinese perspective, um, the United States Indo-Pacific Economic Framework is seen as potentially uh, at odds with its own economic interests by trying to secure supply chains that effectively exclude China um, from the wider regional economic framework in Southeast Asia is obviously a concern for China. Um, and we've seen that reflected in the um, written statement from the Chinese leader, stressing the importance of avoiding unilateralism and protectionism. Um, and Beijing has been keen, therefore, to sort of highlight um, the risk that the Biden administration's approach is a return to, a, if you like, a more protectionist agenda. Now, Secretary of State um, uh, Anthony Blinken has pushed back quite hard against that. That's, I think, a, a reflection of the non-zero-sum approach the United States is taking. But there's no doubt that there is tension over the question of how best to handle China's own mm. significant economic and security influence in the region. And is there likely to be much discussion of two issues for China, Taiwan and North Korea, given the latest uh, missile test overnight? Well, there's already been discussion of the issue of Taiwan in the meeting between Kishida uh, and Xi Jinping. Um, I suspect that the Southeast Asian countries will be keen to avoid any, any explicit reference to the Taiwan situation, other than perhaps anodyne references to the importance of avoiding conflict. And they can take some comfort from the fact that the three-hour meeting that took place between President Biden uh, and Xi Jinping a few days ago was an opportunity um, by both the United States and China to, to maintain their official positions on Taiwan and the one-China policy that China, of course, has continued to assert, which the United States acknowledges, but at the same time um, highlight the importance of avoiding um, the risk of conflict escalating. When it comes to North Korea, of course, um, the fact that we've just had this um, yet another missile launch from the DPRK, a missile launch that um, has been characterized by the Japanese foreign minister um, as being unambiguously an ICBM launch, an ICBM that has the potential to travel some 15,000 kilometers um, as far afield as the United States, is obviously a very real concern. We've seen so many provocations, so many missile launches over the course of the last year, some in the region of 50 or 60, 
Um, the North Koreans, of course, are exercised by the evidence and the signs of closer coordination between Seoul, Tokyo and Washington, um, which we saw last Sunday uh, in the meetings in Bali, um, or rather, excuse me, in the meetings in Cambodia. And this, is, I think, is is a confirmation from Pyongyang's perspective that the the renewed focus on trilateral coordination, whether that takes place diplomatically in the form or in the form of joint exercises and joint coordination on extended deterrence, is seen as directly at odds with their own interests. Um, from the point of view of the international community, however, it's of course evidence that there is greater coordination and I think um, a very strong sense of the urgency of finding clear ways of demonstrating resolve mm. because the risk of not sending a common signal towards the DPRK is that Pyongyang will be minded to continue to provoke and that of course raises the risk of escalation a security crisis through um, through accident perhaps rather than design and of course looming in the background of all of this is the worries about a potential next seventh nuclear test by the DPRK which of course is creating a great deal of concern on the part of um, foreign ministries and leadership in many of these countries. And just uh, finally, just turning to the leaders themselves, they've had a lot of occasion to get together recently. You've had the COP in Egypt, you've had the G20, um, and there's been a few run-ins. You've had the the clip that went viral the other day of President Xi trying to criticise uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Uh, it's a big test for Kamala Harris, who's going in place of President Biden. We know President Putin's not going. Um, what do you think it's worth looking out for between the leader interactions? Um, well, one of the issues, of course, um, it, it, despite all of the progress that's been achieved in terms of, I think, the efforts by Washington and Beijing to emphasize cooperation, um, you know, we've also had the telegraphing of visits next year by um, by Anthony Blinken to Beijing, also by the Japanese foreign minister. Despite all of that progress, there are issues that could perhaps be a source of further irritation. Kamala Harris, for example, will be leaving this APEC summit to travel to the Philippines and plans to visit um, territory near the Spratly Islands. This will be seen undoubtedly as a red flag by the Chinese leadership, given its own security and territorial interests in the South China Seas. So look to see how that is handled. Um, the degree of attention that is given to that issue in some of the public statements by some of the leaders. John Nilsson Wright, thank you very much. This is The Globalist on Monocle 24. Well, the saga of Sweden and Finland's stalled NATO applications is still rumbling on. On Wednesday, Sweden's parliament passed a constitutional amendment that will make it possible to pass tougher anti-terrorism laws. But will it finally be enough to satisfy Ankara? Joining me now from Istanbul is Christian Brakel. He's a foreign policy analyst on the Middle East and Turkey. Christian, thank you for joining us. Firstly, what will this amendment do and will it be enough to satisfy Turkey? I, I, in the moment, we we don't know which effects it will have in in um, in general. But I think, it, or I doubt that it will really be enough to to satisfy what Turkey wants. Because in the end, this is about domestic concerns. We have very important elections coming up next year, both for the parliament and the president. And for the first time since twenty years, the uh, president Erdogan and his party are in a situation where they could possibly lose 
to a stronger opposition. So what he needs is like a definite win that he can sell to, to his constituents. And um, I doubt that anything um, will be done here before these elections take place. So I think like with Sweden doubling over backwards, I doubt that this will have like a really big effect. But given the sort of global crisis, cost of living affecting voters all over the world, is this for the average voter in Turkey really a big deal? Will it be held up as a bit of a win or not? Um, they will try to sell it as a win, but you're right. I mean, uh, Turkish voters are in the moment mainly concerned with two issues. Uh, one is uh, the very, very uh, troubling economic situation. We have inflation rates officially of over uh, 80% and unofficially probably much, much higher. Um, and, and then uh, connected to that, um, the big amount of especially Syrian refugees in the country. Um, but um, it's very, very hard for the government to, to win on these two fronts and to produce anything anything positive for the voters in the short term. Um, it might it might happen that they try to sell sell wins on other front, and this whole thing with Sweden might be one of them. And you know how much pressure is he coming under now from other NATO members, the likes of the United States, because it is a very delicate and difficult time at this stage of the war in Ukraine. Yes, there is a lot of pressure. Um, we saw that even from from NATO uh, General Secretary Stoltenberg, who was here in in Ankara just a few a few days ago, um, and he's normally a very soft spoken person when it comes to to President Erdogan and and uh, Ankara's demands. And even he was saying that enough is enough. Uh, this this really has to go forward. Um, the Americans are pushing off, uh, as well, of course, as, as does the EU. But in the end, I mean, what matters most to President Erdogan are his domestic concerns. Plus, we also should should maybe factor that in. Um, Turkey is currently doing a relatively successful but still very difficult balancing act uh, in between uh, NATO powers and, and Russia. Um, and I could very well imagine that uh, it is also a, a demand from President Putin that he doesn't carve in too easily or not at all. Mm. And turning to some recent remarks by President Erdogan, following that meeting in Ankara, uh, Ankara early in the week between the heads of the CIA and the Russian equivalent, the SVR, he believes both nations have agreed not to use nuclear weapons. Is this credible? I think this might, I mean, we don't, we just don't know what happened behind closed doors, but I think this might uh, reflect uh, the current state of play that, that both countries have uh, assured them, or like each other, that um, that they don't want to go nuclear at, at the current moment. I think the, the, the difficult thing is that there are so many, many factors in, uh, in Russia's politics and in, in the security establishment that we just don't know about. Um, so, like, the situation might deteriorate later, and, and, and then we don't know what these assurances are worth. Uh, but I think for, for the time being, uh, I think it's a very good messaging, and, and um, he might be the, the one who uh, was allowed, basically, to send this signal to the outside world. Well, that prompts my next question. Why do you think he made these remarks? Do you think it was an instruction to sort of put this out? I think they probably they probably agreed on that. Um, and of course, I mean, it's also something that, I mean, the whole war in Ukraine, as much as, as Turkey has benefited from in the sense of like positioning itself as a mediating power and as a strong mediating power, 
Um, in the end, uh, this war is not what what the Turkish government had hoped for, um, especially as it puts. I mean, being in this mediating position, yes, is might give it um, some some favors with its voters. Um, President Erdogan might look strong here domestically, um, but uh, in the end, uh, from an economic point of view and from a strategic point of view, um, Turkey is dependent both on Russia and on NATO. And this whole conflict puts it in a very, very difficult position. Also, uh, in times uh, of uh, economic uh, crisis in Turkey, um, it's not a good sign that its main uh, export market and Turkish economy mainly produces for the export to the EU um, is going into a recession. Mm. So I think that there are like both domestic concerns for himself, for his economy, but also maybe he was allowed to send this signal to the outside world. And finally, just briefly, President Erdogan has been speaking to returning Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu for the first time since 2013. Why do they have uh, this seemingly tricky relationship and why did this call take place now? I mean, we we know both have a relatively difficult personality. Um, There is a relatively long history of this whole, um, yeah, fallout between between Erdogan and Netanyahu and like this all started like over 10 years ago um over the uh, the negotiations even before Netanyahu the, the negotiations uh, over the Golan Heights with Syria where where Turkey was medi- uh, mediating um and then um Israel started uh, back then another round of uh, attacks on the Gaza strip um and basically he felt that that the israelis were going behind his back and not uh, not valuing what he had done and then we had different other steps in in escalation uh, driven by both sides um and like here on the Turkish side i mean you shouldn't forget that um large parts of the Turkish society are not uh, looking very favorably uh, towards Israel, be, either be like due to, to uh, anti-Semitic propaganda, but of course also due to, to Israel's uh, policies vis-a-vis the Palestinians. Um, so this is something that, that President Erdogan could really easily like um, exploit uh, for, for electioneering and, and other things. So, um, so this has been like a very developing or difficult situation for many years. Um, and I think it's basic, it's, it's a very positive signal that uh, this might be changing now. But I mean, it's not changing because any of these men harbor great love for the other but uh, really due to to strategic uh, necessities. All right. Well, Christian Brockel, thank you very much. Still to come on the programme, as two major sporting events are gearing up to take place in Qatar and the UAE, we'll be looking at sports washing in the Gulf region. They've attracted disattention to themselves, and that attention has gone in places where they didn't want it to go. In that sense, it's a miscalculation, which may even prove beneficial from the point of human rights. This is The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems, 
and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. It's 7.20 here in London and 9.20 in Helsinki. Finland is set to spend $143 million on a Russian border fence to strengthen preparedness against hybrid threats and a potential mass influx of asylum seekers. Charlie Salonius Pasternak is a senior research fellow at the Finnish Institute of International Affairs in Helsinki. Charlie, thank you for joining us. Firstly, what is the situation on the border currently and what will this new fence be like? Well, the situation is calm. Um, There's, of course, some traffic still just, shall we call practical or family related um, uh, border crossings going on. So the fence isn't really about uh, solving any current issue. It is more looking at the future. What it is, it's expected to be the borders, of course, a about 1,300 kilometers long, uh, and the border might, the fence might cover a couple hundred kilometers. So basically at all of the border crossings, maybe 10, 15 kilometers in either direction, um, simply to help manage potential issues if Russia in the future were to try to use um, migrants as a, as a weapon, as we, we saw in, in Poland, for instance. And is this just all open land? Is there anything there right now? Uh, and, you know, you've got visions of a, a border wall. You inevitably think of Trump. Or is it going to be a pretty solid wall? Is it going to be a metal fence? What, how, what kind of apparatus are they going to put in place? What we've seen and heard so far is they're actually building a, a three-kilometer test fence just to, to see what things kind of might work, but also to get the whole logistics chain and planning going on. It'll be a, a, a see-through metal fence, a couple of meters long, uh, high, uh, with maybe some barbed wire at the top. The key will, of course, be all the different sensors. I mean, the, the border's already littered with sensors um, from IR to radar to motion sensing to kind of AI-enabled uh, systems. Uh, and of course, it has always been marked, or I'll say always, um, since the end of World War II, well marked. So there's no doubt about where the fence, in a way, should go. Um, there's a border zone. So this is simply just to kind of add to the existing uh, features. And and one might also think of the map as a whole or geography. Um, some of it is not impenetrable, but shall we say... Uh, just deep, dense forest. So it's never been particularly easy to just walk across. And what's the reaction been like of the Finnish people? Uh, well, the, the the government and opposition parties uh, were able to come to a fairly quick solution. So politically, there was very little opposition. And um, based on just public discussions, of course, people have some concerns because they want to ensure that, um, that potential refugees can still easily come to the border, seek asylum. Uh, that won't be a problem, I think. Uh, so most people just saw this as something that unfortunately had to be done because of Russia's uh, behavior and propensity to use this whole hybrid toolkit. And has there been any reaction yet from Russia to the proposals? No, I suspect that quite often, as with kind of Finnish-Russian uh, Finnish, uh, relations, um, 
we're not at the top of the agenda. It's probably uh, Ukraine uh, and a fair number of other things. Um, and Finnish and Russian border guards have historically had functional relationships. I won't call them good necessarily, but they meet frequently enough to try to solve problems. So as long as things stay at that level, it rarely, with the exception of 2015 and 16, when Russia actually did do one of these refugee proofs of concepts to try to show that it could release migrants to Finland, um, the cooperation is quite good. So we haven't heard anything from Russia seriously, and, and I suspect we probably won't. And it looks like this is going to be, you know, a vast border. How long is this going to take to build? Well, the overall planning right now envisions three to four years. Um, and again, that probably reflects that the sense isn't that this is to solve an immediate security crisis. Um, but in a very finished way, if you're going to build it, you might as well do it really well so that it lasts and then serves a broader purpose again. Uh, it's fairly easy to just put up a fence, uh, but of course you got to do it legally. So a lot of the land is owned by private individuals. So you have to negotiate land usage rights, um, figure out what the kind of different censors should be, et cetera. So um, it's not just about putting up the fence. And of course you then need to um, have people actually patrolling the fence or more people. So uh, three to four years is the expected kind of total timeline. And is there any kind of new technology that they're going to be putting into the fence? Is there going to be a lot of CCTV? Are they going to use drones along it as well? Uh, all of those are being used. Uh, I am aware that there's going to be some, or shall we say, uh, existing technology will probably be used to a greater degree. Again, I mentioned kind of AI-enabled. So already there are systems to distinguish between a bear or a man crawling, as it were, over the fence. As I said, the... Um, the border itself is clearly delineated, um, but uh, certainly there will be new systems. And I, I would suspect that, as you suggest, drones, but maybe uh, largely autonomous drones, which in immediately can sense that's deer, that's a bear, that looks like some refugees, that looks like some smugglers, things like this. Uh, I imagine those kind of systems will be integrated into it. Uh, and just turning to Finland's NATO application, we were talking about this earlier in the program with Sweden. It obviously is still stalled. Is there a sense of, of frustration in Helsinki about this? Well, some frustration, of course, because the Finnish political leadership were already in the spring led to believe by their Turkish counterparts that this would be all fine. And of course, what we've then heard, among other things from President Erdogan, is that um, he has no problem with the Finnish application as such um, and has then, of course, said that it's it's Sweden. Has this yet led to any political issues here? No. And, and the Finnish president, prime minister, defense foreign ministers have all said, uh, we've started this process together. We're going to go through with it. Uh, together, um, you know, who knows if if this uh, got dragged out by two or three years, then maybe might feel people might feel different. But Finland is, from a defense security point of view, more secure than it probably has ever been. It's independent, partially thanks to forces from the UK, US, France, continuously training and being present in Finland already. Um, so there really isn't a uh, a kind of security worry in Finland about this delay. Charlie Salonius Pasternak, thank you very much. Here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. 
The Biden administration has determined that Saudi Arabia's crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, should be granted immunity from a lawsuit over the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. The decision, which is non-binding, has sparked condemnation from the slain Washington Post journalist's former fiancé and is likely to provoke an angry reaction from human rights groups. Chinese leader Xi Jinping has declared that China will consider hosting the third Belt and Road Forum for International Cooperation next year. If held, it would be the first staging of the event since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. And a wave of Twitter employees are reportedly quitting the beleaguered social media company after the new owner, Elon Musk, called for staffers to sign up for a, quote, long hours and high intensity contract or leave. Twitter has meanwhile told employees that the company's office buildings will be temporarily closed, effective immediately. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. In the United States, Republicans have won control of the House of Representatives, but the counting of ballots still continues in some closer congressional races more than a week after midterm elections that many had viewed as a test of America's under-fire democracy. One calls Washington correspondent Chris Chermak spoke with Matthew Wheel, an elections expert and head of the Democracy Project at the Bipartisan Policy Center. He began by asking Matt what he thought of the running of an election that had been under such extreme scrutiny. The election apparatus went very well. I mean, we, we certainly saw some issues. Some issues were probably blown out of proportion. Yes, we're, we're about a week past Election Day, a little bit more as we record this, and there's still ballots being counted. That's very normal. That's, that's actually how the process works in every state. Very few have you know officially certified their results. That just takes time. And in the states that have prioritized voting by mail or mail return options or ballot return options like that, it just takes more time. And that's a policy decision that you know, the state legislatures get to make. But I think when they make that, they can't then turn around and say, we need immediate results because you can't have both. Were you surprised at how smoothly everything ran in these midterms, especially after what happened in 2020? I was surprised only because we'd heard a lot from our election official partners throughout the country that they were seeing things in the primary that were concerning. Self-appointed observers coming into the polling places and, and being more disruptive than helpful. And we certainly saw some instances during the general of self-appointed observers, challengers outside of drop boxes, disrupting voters. But for the most part, our election system is very secure and the election officials have plans and are, are very knowledgeable on the systems they use. And so they were able to troubleshoot and prepare contingencies. That's the key. Like, we, we want to make sure that we handle the big issues and that we have the contingencies for the rest. We're obviously heading into a new election cycle. As soon as the old election cycle is over, we, we enter into 2024. I guess the question would be, which one was the outlier? Do you think that 2020 was the outlier in terms of, you know, the result being challenged or... Is it something about the midterms and it may be the stakes in each individual race not being as high that you might expect this could still happen in 2024 as well? We shouldn't take our eye off the ball. We could absolutely revert to a 2020 situation in 2024 when there's a presidential election. It's just different stakes. But there are some indications that constantly attacking the process isn't great for candidates to turn out their voters either. 
So the candidates who were most willing to endorse stolen election ca- uh, claims or you know, endless fraud claims without any kind of evidence did fairly poorly relative to even candidates of their party who didn't make such claims. And so that hopefully does signal a willingness to move on from it. But we should acknowledge that a significant number of people who have made such claims also did win. That's a tool that they've used before, and they were successful the cycle, and I don't I don't see it fully going away. And, and certainly, you know, the former president has already announced uh, his intentions to run for president, and he has spent the past six years, you know, hitting that same note. And so I don't think we're, we're done hearing it yet. In 2020, you had a specific person in Donald Trump challenging the results, continuing to allege that they were fraudulent, even when there was no evidence of that. You didn't necessarily have that in 2022, in the last midterms. You had more people accepting the results. What does that say about just the importance of rhetoric at this point, especially, and heading into 2024? The rhetoric is important. One of the challenges of our democracy is that a lot of the quote-unquote rules aren't really rules. They're traditions or expectations, right? We we don't undermine the people who, who beat us just because we can do so and we can rally our, our supporters against them even when there's no legitimate justification for doing so. We make concession speeches because that's the appropriate way to to lose. We lost that tradition a little bit in, in 2020, which is unfortunate. I'm a little heartened at least that we're getting some of it back because it's, it's really the only way our democracy functions. If, if we have this constant undermining of elections, at some point, you just lose complete trust in government, and, and and then you really don't have a democracy to support anyway. So I do hope we, we see the more even-keeled candidates who are at least willing to acknowledge when they lose. That's just a vital part of how we've made it so long as a function of democracy. Are there a number of ways that you feel the electoral process is still too partisan, that there are better ways to remove these incentives for partisan challenging of the process? If you had a blank slate, This is not the system you create for a modern democracy. I don't think at this point we can take partisan politics out of it. I mean, 40 states, the secretary of state is the chief election official. You know, in several cases, that means that we have secretaries of state who are running elections when they're on the ballot. This is a feature. It's been a long feature, and it's a very difficult one to change. But again, going back to the the question about rhetoric and the incentives, what we saw in 2020 that didn't materialize at least so far in 2022, was also a willingness to try to upend the process after Election Day with respect to certification of ballots and and of votes. There's still a lot of incentives to do that, right? Because relatively unknown partisans can actually make a pretty big name for themselves and and get their names in in headlines and, and leverage that for future runs for office in their state or whatever by doing things that I think most would say are very anti-democratic, not certifying votes from certain segments of the population. And at the end of the day, somebody has to certify the results. And if we're just never going to certify results that we we just don't like, well, again, then the process breaks down. And that's a hard one because there's not really a solution. These are the, the types of things in a democracy that are just tradition. We expect people to act in the appropriate way, even when the outcome isn't what they wanted. And when there's no greater authority that can that can really make them do another thing. So that does need to change. And and the incentives are, are harder to change there because they're not really government incentives. These are this is media and the ability to raise money by just getting your name your name out there. And that's a harder one to turn back. But it's it's something that we certainly want to focus on at the Bipartisan Policy Center. That was Monocle's Washington correspondent, Chris Chermack.
Well, it is 7.35 here in London, 8.35 in Zurich. Let's continue with today's newspapers. And I'm pleased to say joining me in the studio is Simon Brook, journalist and communications consultant. Uh, Simon, thank you for joining us. A first story that's caught your eye, it looks like, is the reaction to the UK's autumn statement. Now, for anyone paying att- not paying attention around the world, the same party in power, they've swapped prime ministers. They've also swapped tens of billions of tax cuts for tens of billions of tax rises. How are they doing this as a quote-unquote conservative party? Well, uh, it's interesting, yeah, the, the, the government's expectation management uh, for, as you say, this very difficult issue for a party that regards itself as, as a tax-cutting party. But the, but the expectation management, I think, has been pretty effective. There don't seem to be any shocks. Looking across the, the UK media, there just generally seems to be a feeling of gloom. It's a sort of, you know, it's as bad as we thought it was going to be. Uh, I'm just interested to see Robert Shrimsley in the Financial Times um, talking about the fact that this autumn statement has very little cheer for a nation and even less to buoy a party that's already has few grounds for optimism. Um, that uh, he, he points out that uh, Shrimsley points out that Jeremy Hunt's overall aim has been to sort of reclaim the mantle of sound public finances for the Tories. And I think it's interesting this debate going on, talking to MPs over the last few weeks. They do regard themselves, as you say, as a, as a party that doesn't like um, swapping tax uh, cuts for public public expenditure increases. But on the other hand, there's another group that says we should be known as the the party of uh, public finances. If you want to see how unhappy some of the uh, Tory supporters are, you could just look at the Telegraph. Um, Hard to spot the difference between Labour and the Tories now. Uh, It says the former Brexit Secretary David Frost says, pointing out that public expenditure will be at its highest since the 1970s, taxation at the highest since the Second World War, and uh, both will only start to fall to fall gently in the 2020s, and then only because of some pretty heroic assumptions about growth. He says so. Um, yeah, pretty depressing reading, but as I say, so far really just uh, you know what we expected. And they will, of course, now be having their eyes on a general election. So. You know, no party wants to have one in the winter again because it's hard to get turnout, hard to get your supporters out door knocking. So we think maybe 16 months until the spring 2024 general election. The latest it could be is about two years from from now, really. Um, And so are they trying to sort of front load some pain to then go into the election and maybe drive up the optimism of things have turned around? They've delayed the cut section of this package until after that election, but it also might tie up Labour if they win and setting a trap for them as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, the FT and, and lots of other coverage as well has pointed out, as you say, this trap that has been set for Labour, because obviously uh, being politicians that uh, that Jeremy Hunt and, and Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister, one thing they will be looking at is the nation's finances, but also their own political fortunes. And so I think, as you say, they've set this sort of trap, really. Uh, the, 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 the trap for Labour is, do you either go ahead with the cuts we're suggesting, which will be very unpopular for your base, or are you going to reverse them? In which case, how are you going to pay for them? Mm. You know, will that be more tax increases? And uh, uh, Robert Shrimsley points out that uh, something similar happened with Labour in and the Tories in 1992. Uh, I have to say an election I worked on for the Tory party. And then there was the tax bombshell, this idea, Labour is going to put up your taxes. So mm. I think that's difficult for Labour. I think what's interesting, if you look at the Labour approach, of course they've been talking about uh, public expenditure cuts, but the real focus for the Labour Party has been very much on 14 years of Tory failure. So I think the Labour pitch 
at the next election, whenever it comes, will be very much, let's look at, you know, the fact that it's time for a change. And it will be interesting to see after that, Ken Clark said when he'd set the spending that Labour stuck to for the first two years, that he actually wouldn't have stuck to that if he was them and got in, whether or not they just are actually more bold, because that's a big regret you pick up in a lot of new Labour biographies, autobiographies, is that they should have been more radical in that first term, but they were just a bit scared. We'll see how that plays out. Turning, though, to uh, matters across the Atlantic, and Nancy Pelosi has taken a big decision. She has. She's decided to step down from being House Speaker and just to carry on being a backbencher. So there's an analysis, yes, in the Washington Post by uh, their uh, Congressional Bureau Chief, Paul Kane. And and it's a kindly look back at her career. He quotes the fact that uh, he quotes her, a voice that will be heard was her first slogan when she first ran for Congress. And he says for the past 20 years, that voice has been heard. uh, And what he describes as eight highly productive years as Speaker of the House, as well as her time on the backbenches initially. Uh, He describes her as being a a whirling dervish of activity. And uh, her achievements include a massive expansions of healthcare to hundreds of billions of new dollars to fight climate change as well. And he also reminds us, of course, that she led the response to the attack last year in on June the sec- John January the sixth, sorry, uh, on the attack on Congress and of course oversaw two impeachments of Mm. Donald Trump. And some incredible footage that she actually got her daughter to film came out recently in the Senate's hearing, in the the House hearings on on January the 6th, uh, basically calling up just local governors, asking them if they'll send in their National Guard, calling everyone that she could, uh, and really down in a basement somewhere, her own life at threat, her own office being torn up. She was really leading the fight to protect everyone. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's looking at other coverage as well in the media of... uh, Nancy Pelosi, you get the feeling that I think that's really sums her up very well. That sort of courage she had, but also that get down on it, get work the phones, get the people around the and table. And be seen to be doing and be it. be seen to be doing it, absolutely. So I think she'll be sorely missed. Uh, her, 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 own, uh, her own base, whatever, she's, uh, will be focusing now on issues in San Francisco, apparently. So that's her. Mm. her and of course, uh, looking after her husband after that dreadful yeah, attack absolutely. as well. And as, as Paul Kane in the Washington Post points out, you know, that was actually something that made her question her original decision to stand down, should she continue as leader, really just to make it clear that those things are not acceptable. Mm, Not going to be cowed by it. Um, Turning now to uh, things a little closer to home here in London, and Emmanuel Macron has called on the countries of Asia-Pacific to join a growing consensus against the war in Ukraine. Yeah, Le Monde reports that earlier today, the French president speaking at the Asia-Pacific Economic uh, Cooperation Leaders Summit in Bangkok has called for what he calls a growing consensus, yes, exactly, amongst Asia-Pacific countries against this uh, the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, and his message to these, uh, these countries is, this war is also your problem uh, because it's going to create a loss of destabilisation. And he wants to uh, encourage them to campaign against the war and respect uh, uh, to send the message to Russia to respect the international order. And I think it's interesting that, you know, when the evasion first happened, we saw quite a lot of countries in the developing world quite cool about this, really, didn't they? I think a lot pointed to this invasion and said, actually, this is a Western problem. This is something that Europe and the US are more concerned about and having to, to will have to solve. And some of them even pointed to the US invasion of Iraq and said, listen, you know, hypocrisy here. Mm. But you see very much, don't you? I think now the, the mood changing. Um, uh, President Xi, Prime Minister of China, 
Prime Minister Modi of India, have both expressed concerns about Putin's actions. And I think as as the real human toll becomes of, uh, more evident and Putin becomes more erratic, we're going to see more of this. And I think... It is- yeah. yeah, it is. And it is, Iraq gets flagged up. But it is a very different case. This is a absolute, you know, modern colonialism. This is taking land. The US and UK never said that they were going to stay there forever. They weren't subsuming it into their own country. It does, you know, a couple of these countries that, you know, the likes of India, likes to talk a lot about the past and colonialism. This is really going to weaken their hand in calling for, you know, things like reparations or apologies and things like that if they're not going to call out what effectively is colonialism taking place right now. And you wonder whether that's perhaps a a calculation they're making, that uh, they're looking at the fact that this situation does seem to get Getting, be getting worse and it does make sense for them exactly to support uh, the international order and a sort of rules-based system. Mm. Uh, and finally, a story that I just absolutely love this morning. Um, you know, I think the <laughs> Qatar World Cup, you know, it was an omni-shambles, a word that we invented here in the UK a couple of years ago about a budget, but now it's becoming a cluster word I can't say on the radio. <laughs> What's this story about? Yeah, the Times, the Daily Mail and certain other stories have, got, uh, have picked up on the the Qatari royal family has demanded a total ban on alcohol sales at the world in the World Cup stadium. So this is just 48 hours before the tournament kicks off. So I think this really amuses me because never mind about uh, human rights, never mind about LGBT rights, never mind about the terrible working conditions of the poor people who've been uh, who've been building these stadiums, whatever. Now it's serious because there's no booze, all right. So mm. what gets me is why did nobody think of this five years ago? Um, the, the 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 Times, for instance, points out that this is really serious for Budweiser, which is one of FIFA's main sponsors. If it's not allowed to sell its product, uh, well, it's, it's also serious for FIFA as well because uh, the world's uh, football's governing it's body big lawsuits absolutely in a here. breach of a multi-million-dollar contract. So the only good news is that you might be able to buy booze in the hospitality boxes okay mm-hmm. so Vinny, if you're really desperate for a drink the bad news is the starting price for one match in one of these boxes is twenty two thousand dollars so that's yeah a, that's a pretty it's expensive just, you round, know if you're willing really? to uh, ignore all the human rights abuses the deaths the anti-lgbt stuff um and you're still going to the golf i really don't feel much sympathy you know you're not gonna ha- <laughs> it doesn't sound like it's going to be a banging time does it <laughs> doesn't um really. well simon brooke uh, thank you very much this is the globalist UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. Well, as just mentioned, the Qatar World Cup kicks off this Sunday, and as does the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix, the final race of the Formula One season this year. But it's not just about fast cars and football this weekend. As billions tune in to watch, human rights abuses and anti-LGBTQ laws in the Gulf region are under the spotlight. Monocle's Emily Sands spoke to Dr David Waring, an author and expert on UK golf relations. She began by asking how golf states are profiting from sports washing to improve their images ahead of these events. The concept of sports washing basically refers to an authoritarian regime like Qatar, but also like Russia, China, and the UAE, Saudi, um, which uses sports as a as a way of 
whitewashing its public image, regimes which are guilty of human rights abuses, but which want to show the world a more sympathetic face and do that through uh, hosting sports events. Why do sporting governing bodies allow places such as Qatar, Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, Abu Dhabi to host these events, especially sports like Formula One? Their slogan is We Race as One, which is supposed to tackle, you know, inequality and is working towards being more diverse and standing against racism and human rights. And this Sunday is the beginning of the World Cup in Qatar. And it's also the final race for the F1 season in Abu Dhabi. Both places don't have sporting history. So why are these events still going forward? And why are they still managing to build these huge stadiums and new race circuits to hold these events? I suspect almost the entire answer is money. Mm. Um, These regimes are, are incredibly wealthy, especially when the price of energy is high as it has been for most of the last 20 years. They've reaped just enormous revenues from from the high price of oil for most of the last 20 years and the high price of gas as well. So they're absolutely swimming in cash, huge amounts of sovereign wealth, which they're spending not just on arms, they're some of the biggest arms importers in the world, but they're also spending on investments in the West, part of which is about sports washing or just, you know, binding themselves closely to the West. Mm. And sport is a business, do you know, I mean, like football is, a, is big business, F1 is big business. I mean, however, some brands have protested against the human rights record that Qatar has. I mean, you've got Hummel, Coca-Cola, Adidas. Hummel announced that it would have had a toned-down kit in a protest against what's happened in Qatar. Why do you think that more brands haven't spoken up? And what difference can bigger brands do and bigger sponsorships make in countries with a chequered past? I think it's really bad judgment, the ones that haven't done anything. And And the ones that have, it's all a bit, you know, too little, too late. And... It's, it's these corporate brands, but it's also the football associations as well. You know, you can understand why perhaps an outright boycott isn't something that they do. But some of the gestures that they've tried to do to smooth it over have been pretty feeble. I think that with the English FA, the players are going to wear like an armband, a multicoloured armband that says one love on it. I mean, what does that mean? Well, that actually brings me on to my next point. Um, Surely it's a good thing to have sports people like Lewis Hamilton and Harry Kane wearing the rainbow flag in these countries on the global stage. And without these sporting events, surely such campaigns would never be visible in these territories otherwise. Do these messages have any recognition? And in a sort of way, is this progressive to have the spotlight on these countries to force entry in open debates like this? I mean, this is why sports watching is such a double-edged sword from the point of view of these regimes. The calculation clearly is that they can improve their public image by hosting these events. But they attract a spotlight. And the thing about it is that that tyranny, those human rights abuses, they can't just be magicked away and Mm. they can't be covered up with a kind of Potemkin village of a sporting event. They've attracted this attention to themselves and that attention has gone in places where they didn't want it to go. So in that sense, it's a miscalculation and it's a miscalculation which may even prove beneficial from the point of view of human rights because you take the situation of the migrant workers, they're still treated appallingly, but there have been steps taken by the Qatari regime which have improved their condition to a degree. Now, the Qataris will say, ah, you see, it's all been a catalyst for change and it's helping Mm. us to do it issue as though as though they weren't the problem as though they were as surprised as anyone to find migrant workers being exploited in their own country the reality is they were forced into doing that they spent six or seven years after the world cup was awarded just in 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 total denial 
that there was any problem. They were finally forced to make some reasonably significant changes. And so this this is a this is an example, perhaps, of the way in which this might be a miscalculation from their point of view. I'm sure these concessions, these concessions certainly weren't concessions that they wanted to make. They've been forced to make them because of the scrutiny that's been placed on them, which was scrutiny they didn't want. So to the extent that those sports people you mentioned are doing those things, are raising those issues, and I think Lewis Ham- Hamilton in particular has been pretty principled and pretty good. Um, more than you might expect from the average sportsman. That's all part of that dynamic. And just finally, other than global sporting events, how do you think the Gulf states can try to change their image going forward? What can these countries do to improve their international reputation? You must stop abusing human rights. I think the more pertinent question is, is from our point of view, because remember, these regimes didn't come out of thin air. They were built up and buttressed by the West. They've been armed by the West, security forces trained by the West, including when they've you know crushed peaceful demonstrations like in Bahrain, for example, in 2011. That was the crushing of the pro-democracy movement in that country it was done with Western arms and Western trained security forces. So the question really comes to us as as you know, people in Western states, what are we going to do about the fact that our governments have been consistent supporters mm. of just utter tyranny in some parts of the world for so long? We need to move beyond, I think, this idea of, you know, look at us with our wonderful Western liberal progressive values and look at those backward Arabs with their, you know, Oriental despotism and their Islamic tyranny and start to realise that that's not what's going on. What's really going on is authoritarianism and human rights abuses which are a joint venture between gulf elites and western elites that's 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 what's really happening and then we can start asking ourselves as western citizens the question of what we're going to do to challenge our government's support for these um, human rights abusing regimes and then we might get some some progress well that was emily sands in conversation with david waring you're listening to the globalist on monocle 24 Well, it's time to talk TV news with critic and broadcaster Scott O'Brien. Scott, thank you for joining us. Uh, Firstly, Neighbours went off air just three months ago, the classic Australian soap, but it's already making a comeback. Yes, I mean, this is the thing I think not even the people who are in the show um, really expected either. Um, It's going to be relaunched, the Much Love Australian Soap, by Amazon Freebie, which is a relatively new sort of free streaming service. There's, of course, Amazon Prime Video. This is a sort of a free tier they've had for a little while now. used to be called IMDb TV. And uh, they have committed to not only showing lots of archive episodes, but a new series next year and i guess sort of you know, why i've chosen this story is the fact that it's um quite big in terms of a streaming service um getting involved in a soap normally it tends to be the case that a streaming service likes a limited series because it has a finite end if it doesn't get the ratings immediately they can easily cancel it whilst uh, a soap is actually even though it's quite uh, cheap per episode you've got a very large cast a very large crew a permanent base um, this um, soap is at the other side of the world. Um, so it's a little bit harder to know whether it's going to work. But Amazon's clearly convinced just by the fact of how many fans they have been. And they've been very vocal in recent weeks, hoping that this uh, soap would stay. 
And I'm guessing the initial investment cost, I mean, it's a, a brand that's already known. The set presumably is all still standing. Just about, but you, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you'll have to, you know, pay the, get the actors back on board on, on contracts. But is this, I mean, for a streaming service, it's not very easy for kind of new viewers to, to dip into an established soap that was going for 30 years. So will this work, do you think? Well, that's the that's the, the issue, because I feel like one of the main appeal of soaps is just the fact that they are there. They're on the schedules on the, the TV. You get into the pattern of watching them at a certain time every single day. Um, I feel that if it's on a streaming service, even to fans, the, the, the obligation that you would have to go out of your way to find it and press play at the part of every single day feels a little bit hard to achieve. I mean, Amazon don't um, reveal their viewing figures on anything. Um, so uh, you wouldn't really ne- necessarily know whether it is a success. But I think what's interesting is that they have partners up with um, Channel 10 in Australia, uh, which was the network that actually aired uh, Neighbours until relatively recently. So you sort of wonder whether a similar deal will be done in the UK. Um, so, of course, you could have a s- scenario in which they might have a first look, you know, ex- exclu- exclusivity, but then it, it could be back on another channel like, like Channel 5 again. Wait and see. Mm. Uh, and turning to another streaming service, Netflix, which has spent, you know, the past decade or so trying to disrupt linear TV, might be getting in on the game. Yeah. So for years, uh, Netflix has said that live TV is something that they wouldn't ever think about doing because of the difficulties around it. But they are all around binges and, and box sets. But they're starting a comedy special um, uh, in a, a few weeks, a few months time, which will be live the very first time that it has been live. And I think it's interesting because if you look at streamers, they are stepping into live TV considerably more. You've got Amazon doing um, football. You've got Apple TV doing baseball. Um, and, and now you've got Netflix going into comedy. But I remember speaking to Netflix executives you know, a few years ago, albeit, but being adamant that this is something that they wouldn't do. So you sort of wonder whether in this sort of streaming service um, slowdown in terms of new subscribers, whether they are resorting to things that they never would have thought of in the hope of getting new subscribers because of course i guess they would want to replicate or or even build on the success of live traditional linear tv uh, and just finally briefly uh, it's children in need here on the bbc in the uk and there's going to be a, a special tv announcement tonight Yes, the BBC has just said in the last hour that they're going to be unveiling the Doctor's new companion on, of course, Doctor Who. Interesting time because, of course, the show has recently joined up with Disney, which has said that there's going to be substantial more money in the budget and, of course, a huge global reach. So you sort of wonder who it could be. Um, I'd say Russell T. Davis, who is, of course, now back on as creator, so back on as um, executive producer, um, he is known for, I think, inspired casting, but also drumming up a lot of suspense and anxiety. So I'm sure fans will be doing that today. Scott Bryan, thank you very much. Well, that's all for today's programmes. Thanks to our producers, Emma Searle, Laura Kramer and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs, our researchers, Lillian Fawcett and Emily Sands, and our studio manager, Steph Chungu. After the headlines, there's more music on the way. The briefing is live at midday in London. The Globalist returns at the same time on Monday. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Thank you for tuning in. <laughs>